Thanks, John. Good morning, Christ Church. It is good to be with you all this morning. So I want to begin just by sharing a bit of family news with you that is kind of bittersweet. Uh, this last week, uh, many of you know uh, of Maureen Georgiades. She's uh, been a longtime member of our church and has invested her life in just opening up her home and reaching uh, international students and caring for people. And she's just been a real model of faithful Christian witness. And this last week, she went home to be with the Lord. And so that's bittersweet news for many of us, uh, bitter because, of course, we've lost just a lovely saint from our midst, but sweet because, uh, you know, Maureen had been suffering for quite some time, and I know it was her deepest heart's desire just to go and be in the presence of Christ, but I spoke with her daughter a couple days ago, and you could just be praying for them and their family during this time. I know it's just a, you know, it's a space of grieving for them. And then we'll be sharing with you all news or our e-newsletter about a service when we have one on the calendar. So with that, would you join with me as we turn to God in prayer? Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, would your word penetrate into the deep recesses of our hearts? Would your word be a light that exposes pockets of blindness in our life? And God, would you enable us to experience the fullness of life that Jesus came into this world to bring? And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So I wanted to begin this morning by asking you this question. Have you ever gotten yourself into a compromising or maybe a dangerous or maybe an embarrassing situation because you ignored a warning? Have you ever got yourself into a compromising or dangerous or embarrassing situation because you ignored a warning? Now, I know for some of you, the answer, of course, is no. You are very safety-conscious people, and you always read the warning level labels. You always pay attention to the signs, and you're always, whoa, slow down. Did you see the speed limits? You know who you are. And, um, but, you know, there's others of us in the room. We like to walk on the wild side, you know, we, we look at danger in the face and we scoff and we think that those warning labels are for those, you know, kind of those more accident-prone people, but that's not you, is it? You are confident and you are put together. And uh, I find myself in the latter category and not the former. And I remember several years ago now, I was, um, I was driving... Uh, we used to make this drive all the time from Albuquerque to Long Beach and then Long Beach to Albuquerque. We do this two or three times a year when I was living off in Albuquerque. And it's about 800 miles. And so if you drive 80 miles an hour and there were no stops, you could do the drive in 10 hours precisely. Now, of course, um, we did require a stop because we would make this drive typically with four children and a dog. And so I would allow for not one, I was so gracious to allow for two stops, 15 minutes each. And if we could average 80 miles an hour, I could make the drive in about 10 hours and 30 minutes, which I did on a number of occasions. Thank you. Now, the, the problem with trying to make this drive in a particular time period is that each time I would try for my personal best. And you know what I'm talking about. You know, you, each time you try to make an improvement on the last, and this is what I would frequently 
do. And there was one particular year when I was driving back from Long Beach to Albuquerque, and I was driving through Arizona, and there's a portion of the 40 that you're kind of driving through some mountainous regions. And frequently on the side of the road, there are two signs. One sign says, no passing on the right, and the other sign says, watch downhill speed. And on this particular occasion, I was driving and we were going down on an incline. We had been on an incline for about a mile or so. And I started to pick up speed. Now, I was in a zone, you know, going for my best. And I was, I was like in the zone, about ready to make my best time. And, um, and, but there was this semi-truck in the fast lane. And I was like, what are you doing? So then I swerved and I went and I passed him on the right. And while I was passing him on the right, I looked in my rear view mirror and there was flashing lights. And then I looked down at my speedometer and I was going 101 miles an hour. Pastor Josh was going 101 <laughs> miles an hour. And I was freaked out, and so I just pressed on the gas, and I drove faster. And I thought, we can outrun, I just didn't, I didn't do that. But I had pulled over. And the, the police officer walked up to the side of the car, and he was absolutely livid, and he started to describe to me the bodies that he has peeled off of the pavement, and how could I, and what was I thinking, and didn't I know that he could take me to jail right now, that he could call Child Protective Services, my kids are in the back, they are crying, I'm in the front, I'm crying, and all because I ignored a warning. Now, of course... Um, on that occasion, it could have been a lot worse. It was absolutely foolish and stupid. I have never driven that fast since, maybe once, but not, no. But on that occasion, the danger was only that I suffered a ticket, but it could have been far, far worse because very often we ignore warnings to our own peril. You know, the Bible, God's word is replete with warnings. It issues warnings all the time to us. It, it seeks to grab our attention, to raise our awareness that life is full of all kinds of dangers and threats. And there's one particular place in the Gospels uh, where Jesus warns us of a specific threat that he labels covetousness. There's a man that walks up to Jesus one day and says, hey, uh, divide the inheritance with my brother. And Jesus says, man, who made me an arbiter over you? And then he turns to us all, all of his disciples, and he says, beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of things they possess. This morning, I want us to consider the warning of Jesus against covetousness. And I want to do that by turning your attention to the story that we're going to look at in 1 Kings. And it's another story regarding Elijah. And I think this story in particular is meant to put us on notice about the dangers of covetousness. And the story begins in 1 Kings chapter 21. And it begins like this. And it's a story about a man named Naboth, a, uh, a king named Ahab, uh, the queen whose name is Jezebel, and of course that fiery ancient prophet Elijah and his confrontation, and it begins like this. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. 
So Ahab is on vacation at his summer palace in Jezreel. He's looking out the window, and there beside the palace is a little field that's owned by a peasant whose name is Naboth. And there's a lovely vineyard on this field. And Ahab looks out at it, and he thinks, I want that field. And it's in the Jezreel Valley. It's prime real estate. This is the bread basket of ancient Israel. And the land is fertile. He's like, this could be perfect for my vegetable garden. Have you been there? You've kind of seen the car you want, uh, the house you'd like to buy, the vacation you'd like to go on. You just think, oh, that would be so perfect. And this is Ahab. He's looking out at the field. And he says, that is so perfect. Perfect. That I, I want that field. It can become a vegetable garden. I know. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. And he thinks maybe I'll buy it or maybe I'll trade it. Uh, but, but whether buy or trade, Ahab is certain of this one thing. He wants Naboth's vineyard. And here we get a window into what covetousness is what is covetousness anyway? I mean, it's kind of an archaic word. It's not one you use kind of in modern parlance. Uh, I didn't last week talk to anybody about the problem of covetousness, did you? And, and yet in the Bible, here's Jesus, like, beware, what, what is it? Well, covetousness is a close cousin of greed. And what is greed? Greed is an inordinate desire. You could say an excessive desire for more. You know, the greedy person says, I don't have enough and I need more. I need more money. I need more savings. I need more beer. I need more vacations. I need more fancy dinners. I, I need more technological gadgets. I need more. And covetousness is a close cousin to greed. It's similar, but it's different in this. Covetousness is an inordinate desire, not just for more or not just for something. It's an inordinate desire for something that belongs to someone else. And this is the unique quality of covetousness. It is when you look at something someone else has and you think, I want it. I really, really want it. And of course, it's forbidden in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, he says this, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. Notice, coveting involves your neighbor. It involves wanting something that your neighbor has. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, the word covet, again, we're talking about excessive desire. Now, of course, we never have commerce in the modern world if you didn't want something that somebody else had. You know, the American free market economy is governed by the laws of supply and demand, after all. There does need to be some kind of demand for something that your neighbor has, but this is an excessive desire for something that belongs to someone else. And notice how comprehensive the Bible is. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servants, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness can involve anything. In other words, you can covet uh, your neighbor's stuff, of course. You can covet their technological gadgets. They've got something that you want, Ryan Wiley. Um, if you go to his house, you might covet his technological gadgets. He's got many. You might covet your neighbor's, you know, Tesla. You, know, you might covet your neighbor's renovated kitchen. 
But it's coveting your neighbor's something. But of course, it can also be something, maybe a physical trait. You could covet your neighbor's waistline or their nose or their height. You know, you can covet your neighbor's physical traits. You can covet your neighbor's relational status. You know, maybe you're, 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 you're single and your, your girlfriend's single and, and you're, you're, you're kind of cool when you're both single, but all of a sudden she starts dating somebody that you wish you had and you start coveting and all of a sudden you are just sour. You're covering their relational status. Of course, you can covet your neighbor's gifts, the way they dance, uh, their intellect, uh, their scholastic achievements, uh, their educational or vocational accolades, the things they've done, where they work. You can covet your neighbors anything. And what Jesus tells us and what the Old Testament tells us and what the story is going to teach us is that covetousness, desiring something that belongs to your neighbor, can be incredibly destructive in your life. Now, notice how it plays out in the story that unfolds. So Naboth, he's looking out the window, there's the vineyard. He's like, I want my neighbor's vineyard. And so what does he do? Well, look what happens. He goes to Naboth and he says, Naboth, uh, hey, let me make you an offer you can't refuse. You know, he had just finished reading that book, The Art of the Deal. And he's like, I, I, I got it. You know, he's like, what? Let me get, what's the fair market value? I'll give you a fair price. Or maybe, maybe money's not your thing. I will give you a better vineyard. And notice Naboth's answer. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forget, forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, we have to go below the surface to know what's happening in this passage. Naboth says, I'm not going to sell you my inheritance. Now, our first read of this might be something like, you know, my grandma gave me this property and it's very, very special to me. And uh, no price on earth is worth the value that this prophet, that this prophet, that this, I was going to say prophecy, but property, property, thank you, Steve, holds for me. And, um, but he's not exactly saying that. What we are seeing in this text is that Naboth and Ahab represent two different views of this strip of land. And so Naboth, the king, he views the land as a commodity. And as such, the land is simply there for purchase or for sale. It is there as another good and service that is there to be bartered in the marketplace for the right price or for another piece of property. And he views himself and Naboth primarily and fundamentally as owners. And they, of course, are driven by self-interest. And they're going to get the price they want or the land they want if they can just, you know, I'm an owner, he's an owner, give him the price he wants. This is another commodity. We'll trade it, we'll sell it, we'll do our thing. But Naboth has a different view of the land. For Naboth, the land is not a commodity. It's a gift. It's a gift that has been granted by God you see, in the ancient Israelite imagination, the land was the inheritance that God gave his people. When the people of Israel were freed from the land of Egypt, God brought them into the land and said, the land is gift and grace, and it's your inheritance. And then God divided up the land between the tribes and between the clans and between the families and, and every tribe and every clan and every family got their own strip of land. And their view of the land is not that they were owners and this was a commodity. The view of the land was that they 
were stewards of this land that was gift. And they were stewards not just for themselves, they were stewards for the future generations. And so every decision that they made about the land shouldn't just take into account themselves, but their covenantal obligation toward the generations that would go after them and to the generations that had gone before them and to the God that had made them. This was a covenantal view of land. And so Naboth, this is his inheritance. This is his strip of land. He says, no, I will not sell it. Now, how is Ahab feeling at this moment? Ahab is feeling now like a child that doesn't get the toy they really, really want. The text is going to tell us that he is sullen and he is vexed and he is very, very unhappy. Look at what it says. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face away, and he would eat no food. And isn't it ironic that here is the king of Israel. He has everything you could want. He has all of the lands, all of the palaces. He's, he's at his vacation palace in the summer, you know. And yet, what does he want and what is making him upset? It's the one thing he can't have. It's the one thing that belongs to the impoverished peasant who lives next door. And because he can't have it, he is vexed and sullen. You know, it is a deceptive lie to think that you would be happy if you just had more. If you just had more money, if you just had a larger bank account, if you could just get the Tesla, if you could just get that technological gadget that you're dreaming of, or you could take those vacations, or you could eat at Fleming's or Houston's a little more often or whatever, if you could, then you'd be, no, you, you know, the richest people in the world have always borne witness to this reality, that no matter what you have, oftentimes what is causing you grief is what you don't have. And this is Ahab. He is sullen and he is vexed and he is so upset, but good news because he's married to a woman named Jezebel. And look what happens next. Jezebel, his wife, came in and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed and you eat no food? She walks in. She says, honey, come on. What's going on? You look so sad and depressed and upset. What's going on? And he said to her, well, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if you please, give you, let me give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. <laughs> and Jezebel's wife said to him, she said, honey, you know, you, you're the king. You have so many other things. Just be content with what you have. No, Jezebel doesn't say that. Jezebel that Jezebel voice in your head never says that. What does Jezebel say? Jezebel says, are you not the king? Hello? Do you not govern Israel? And do you hear the implication? I mean, the implication is like, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm the daughter of a Sidonite king. And over in Sidon, we have a rule. The one who holds power rules. The king does what the king wants. The king gets what the king wants. Why are you sullen? You're the king. You want the land? I'll get the land for you. And listen to what she says. She concocts this terrible plan. And uh, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. 
And so she is doing his dirty work while he turns a blind eye, as it were. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. It's interesting. She uses religion as a cover for the work she wants to do politically and economically. She's not the first or the last person that's going to use religion as a cover for the kind of shady business that might happen politically or economically. She wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, a religious ceremony, and then set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, a false charge, a lie. They are bearing false witness, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Again, it's a religious crime. And then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And two of the worthless men came and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and king. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Have you ever, for a moment, just imagined what death by stoning would entail and what it would look like? Imagine this group of people falsely accusing this poor peasant because of his covenant faithfulness, his commitment to the generations that went before him, the generations that would go after him, his commitment that commodification is not going to be what happens in my land. And here he's taken out and he's stoned to death. And they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. By the way, what this is going to mean is when he arises and takes Naboth's field, that it means that Naboth's sons are now fatherless. His wife is now a widow. Now they are in the social class that is going to be landless and powerless and moneyless, and not just for this generation, but for generations that will follow. This is creating a problem of generational poverty. So take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Think about the opposite word that the women came to the disciples with after Jesus had been raised from the dead. He is not dead. He is alive. Now she brings the antithesis of gospel. He's dead, not alive. And as soon as Ahab had heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Now, there's all sorts of things happening in this text, right? There's all kinds of crimes there's all kinds of violations of God's law. Thou shalt not bear false witness, and they bore false witness against Naboth. Thou shalt not murder, and they took him outside, and they murdered innocent Naboth. Thou shalt not steal, and they took and they stole Naboth's field. There's all kinds of law breaking going on here, but I want you to note well, what is at the very root of all of the fruit of this law breaking? It is the sin of covetousness. Covetousness is the root 
Ultimately, the generative source, the seed that was planted in, in Ahab's heart that ultimately grew into fruition of all of this murder and theft and deceit and injustice and generational poverty, what's at the root of it is covetousness. It's the violation of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Now, let me just ask, is coveting a problem for you? Do you ever find yourself looking at something that is your neighbor's and wanting it? You want their body, you want their relational status, you want their car, you want their house, you want their property, you want their financial freedom, you want their vacations, you want to be able to go uh, to the dinners that they go to, you want what they have. Does anybody in the house ever find themselves struggling with covetousness? None of you? Well, let me ask you some diagnostic questions. You say, well, how can I know if this is a problem? Well, of course, of course, all of us want some things. And of course, wanting something beyond what you have is not necessarily covetousness. And so what are some of the, the symptoms of the disease? And let me give you some diagnostic questions. Number one, are you focused on what others have that you don't have? Now, of course, this kind of dissatisfaction grows in the soil of comparison. It's when you're comparing yourself, your body, your gifts, your vocation, your education to someone else. And in the soil of comparison, oftentimes, dissatisfaction grows. You know, it was the General Motors people who said that marketing was about the organized creation of dissatisfaction. Marketing is the organized creation of dissatisfaction. Of course, they said that back in the 50s. Today, we have a new organized creation of dissatisfaction, and it's called social media. Amen? I mean, we could say that the greenhouse of comparison is Instagram, isn't it? You look at her vacations, or their kids, they're so perfect, or, you know, their life, and their house, and their remodeled kitchen, and you are upset and you are sullen and you're vexed because you're comparing them to you and you've come back in the raw and you're just like, I, this is wrong, this is unfair, that they get it and I don't. Do you ever find yourself comparing yourself to someone else and finding yourself dissatisfied with your own life? Let me ask you a second question. You said, well, no, I've, I've never done that. Are you ever bitter when they have it better? Do you ever find yourself looking at someone that has something that you don't have? You know, I remember when I was in high school, there was a, a guy in our youth group, and he was excellent at everything. He was brilliant. Uh, he was this outstanding musician. Uh, he was an incredible athlete, and he wound up, you know, competing professionally in a bunch of different sports. And, um, and, and, and he was just, he was good looking, and, and he was popular, and he had a great personality, and he was funny, and, and he was the kind of guy that you just looked at, and you just think, I hate you. Do you find yourselves bitter when they have it better, growing more and more sullen and angry because of what you see happening in someone else's life? You know, what all of the sociologists are telling us now is that over the last five years, with the rise in use of social media, more and more there is a rise in depression, especially among young people, especially among young girls. And why is that? 
Well, oftentimes it's because of the comparison game. It's because you're comparing yourself to somebody else, you're wanting what they have and you don't and you are upset. Are you bitter when they have it better? Has anybody ever heard of this word, schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. It's a good German word. You say, what does it mean? It is satisfaction and pleasure felt at someone else's misfortunes. Now, you may not have known the word, but you know the feeling, don't you? I mean, in some ways, isn't it the most evil and diabolical experience that you have? You saw them and you looked at their kids and they were so perfect and so great. And then all of a sudden, you heard that one of their kids went off the rails and is now addicted to drugs. And there was something inside of you that liked it. Schadenfreuden. One philosopher put it like this, in the misfortunes of our best friends, we always find something not altogether displeasing to us. Schadenfreude. And so are you bitter when they have it better? But let me ask you, let me ask you one more question. How willing are you to look the other way? Look the other way for what? Look the other way in order to get the thing that you really excessively want. You know, there is a whole lot of looking the other way in the American economy. You know, our economy, it, it's driven by, of course, the production of goods and services, the extraction of natural resources from different parts of the world, and the production of those resources in different parts of the world. And oftentimes, if you follow the trail all the way back, there is a trail of injustice after injustice, and people working in sweatshops, and children be being treated in ways that you would never allow your children to be treated. You would never allow kids in America to be treated, and yet we look the other way when people in other countries are treated that way. Why? Well, because of our insatiable appetite for more and more stuff so that we can keep up with the Joneses. We need cheap products. How willing are you to look the other way? How are you feeling right now? Can I just get a little check on the guiltometer right now? I'm sorry, this is the, the story, you know, this is what happens when you open up the prophet Elijah. This ancient prophet gets in your business and gets under your skin. And this is what's going to happen next. He's going to confront Ahab, and I think through confronting Ahab, maybe you'll find yourself confronted with the problem of covetousness. You know, Ahab, up to this point, the voice that he's been listening to is the voice of Jezebel. But now another voice breaks in, and it's the voice of God that's going to come through the prophet Elijah. And look what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your own blood. In the place where they licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs, Ahab, are going to lick up your own blood. And so Elijah gets this message from God. He goes to Ahab and he speaks it to him. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. 
I will utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahiha, for the anger to which you have provoked me because you have made Israel the sin. It's interesting. He takes God's word and he amplifies it a little bit more. And it goes a little bit further. And to Jezebel, he said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country shall the birds of the heaven eat. Ouch. This is intense. And I want you to notice he meets us, he meets Ahab with a warning. See what will happen. Be on guard. Notice where this is taking you. It will take you. Covetousness, when it gets a hold of you, when it goes down deep inside of you, it is going to take you to a gruesome end. And I think this warning is not simply there to, um, you know, disturb us all by the graphic, gruesome nature of it. I think there's something more going on here. I think this warning is inviting us to consider where covetousness will take us. And if we allow this warning to get in, its, in our hearts and do its work, it might lead us to repentance and change. And notice, I, I think he wants us to get in this message, number one, that covetousness will eat you alive. Jezebel is ultimately going to be eaten, 2 Kings 9, by the dogs. It's going to say at the end of that text, her body was gone and just her skull and her hands were left. And who said the Bible is not interesting, you know? <laughs> but I think, I think there's something almost metaphorical going on here. Do you see what covetousness will do? It starts to eat you and corrode your soul from the inside out. You become more bitter. You start rejoicing when other people are hurting. You start turning a blind eye to injustice and oppression and all manner of ways in which people are harmed in this world, and we become more and more content with generational poverty, and, uh, and, and we just, we're, with the growing expanse of the rich and the poor, and we're just, why? Something is eating you from the inside. And what's eating you is really the sin that's even below the sin of covetousness, which ultimately is idolatry, because what are you doing when you're being covetous? You are saying, I need something in my life that is of higher importance than anything else. Any other covenant commitment and loyalty that I have to God or to my neighbor, I need something more. And that kind of thinking will eat your soul. But I think the warning is not simply there to tell us that covetousness will eat you alive. I think it wants us to see, secondly, that covetousness tears apart the social fabric of the world in which we live. You know, again, you think about the generational poverty that's going to result as because this wealthy person stole a field from the poor. And now 
There's a widow and now there's fatherless children who now generationally will not have the means of production. They will not have land. And again, you take it back to its source and its covetousness. You know, I, I read some different commentaries that were asking the question whether or not this story is a critique of the free market and of capitalism and the idea of commodities being bought and sold and buying and selling land. And I don't think it exactly is. I think what it's critiquing is what corrupts a free market, which is the problem of covetousness. It's an inordinate desire to have what other people have. And that ends up corrupting and corroding the system and tearing apart the social fabric. And then thirdly and finally, I think this warning is, is meant to show us that God will ultimately hold us to account for what we do with our lives and with our money and to our neighbor before his face. Elijah breaks in with a word from God. This is the voice of God. It's not that Jezebel is the only voice that matters in America. There is another voice, a more defining, a more powerful, a more real voice that we need to attend to, and that is the voice of the true and living God in whose world we exist. This world belongs to God, and the resources in this world are not simply meant to be piled up in the hands of a few while the many suffer and are impoverished. God's world is intended to be a world of sharing and of generosity where all can be cared for. And God will hold you account. He'll hold me to account. Now, what's interesting is this warning is levied, or it's, it's, um, it's given <laughs> to Ahab. And the shock in the text, the biggest surprise in the text is that Ahab responds to the warning with repentance. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. He is made aware of what this thing is doing to his heart and to his community, and he repents. He puts on sackcloth, and he, he, he humbles himself before God. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, and God says to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in the son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. This house is not going to continue on forever. The injustice will not keep going on. But he's going to show him mercy, at least in this day. And I wonder in this moment how Elijah responded to the repentance of Ahab. I wonder if it was something like Jonah, who when he saw God's mercy on the Ninevites, he was a little bit like, What? Our oppressors, those who perpetuate injustice, you're going to show mercy on them? And God's like, yeah, I am. My heart of compassion and love is that big. God is always showing compassion. And God is more ready to forgive and to show mercy far more than we are ready to repent. 
God is available and it is his mercy and his love that brings us to repentance. And here in this text, you know, God shows mercy even on Ahab, the wicked king Ahab, and God continues to show mercy on his people. But Ahab repents. And I think it's an invitation to us today, maybe just to do a fresh inventory in our own hearts and lives. And I don't imagine there's anybody in this room, I hope there's not anybody in this room who's been out hatching plans to bear false witness and falsely accuse someone and then have them stoned to death and then steal their things. But some of you, man, you, you are taking deep pleasure and satisfaction when they're hurting. And you're committing character assassination because when you bring them down, it at least makes you feel good because you're bitter when they have it better. And I think this text is here to put us on guard, to make us aware, to say, look, this can be a problem for us. Jesus says, beware of covetousness. For a person's life does not consist in the abundance of what he possesses. What then does life consist of? What is it that we should ultimately look to to find our satisfaction and our joy if it's not another field or a Tesla or a kitchen renovation or a vacation? What should we look to to find ultimate joy and satisfaction? What is the ground of our ultimate existence? What is it that we find our true identity and meaning? It is in God. God who has given himself fully and unreservedly for us in Christ. And he says, come to me and stop all of your anxious pursuit of having everything that everyone else has that you think if I just had that, I would be happy. And he says, that is a lie. But come to me and build your identity and find your worth and grow your life on my love. And here is where you will begin to experience fullness of life. And people who are finding life in God and drawing life from God can go out into the economy and can go out at the market and can go on to Amazon and can buy and sell and engage, but it's not where you are finding your life and your identity and your meaning and your purpose because you have found it in something so much better and you can release and you can let go and you can live with an open hand and you can put away that grasping fist because your hands are full of the life and the love of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now as the one who knows our hearts so much better than we know ourselves. And I pray, oh God, that you would expose to us those places, those pockets in our life where we have been grasping, where we have been coveting, where we have felt envy and schadenfreude. God, would you expose all of that and would you bring about true repentance? Would you enable us, God, to humble ourselves before you and open our hearts to you and our hands to you? And in opening our hands, may we find that we are filled with your fullness and with your goodness and with your life and with your love. 
And in finding life in you, God, may you give us a new freedom to live the lives that you have given us to live in this world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.